0: You already know who it is, Poncadelophiles. It's Pocket Lint Eastwood, Unslim Shady, Silly Talent, Fat Jennings. Let's get Pongadelic. Because tonight, what we got on the show is primarily our breakdown or review of Mastodon's new album. And it's like, I just take it, took it super, super serious. I recorded it earlier, Stone Cold Sober, so it's very dry. It's just me being very serious, very... Uh, what's the word i'm looking for look it's just it's a wildly great album that i am fucking head over heels about so it's just me gushing about this album breaking it down into minute detail picking out all the little bits that i think make it as good as they are and just sort of trying to review it in a way that made sense to me because like i'm not a professional fucking journalist i don't know anything about music that i didn't learn from just sitting listening to it so that's what we got so that ran maybe 40 minutes i'm sure once it's cut down it'll only be like 30 but Here's another one one of these things where it's just like, look, obviously I wouldn't know who the fuck Lori Lightfoot was if it wasn't for the Tim Dillon podcast, but I'm not fucking copying him. This is fucking public information now, right? But in case you're not a fucking balls deep Tim Dillon fucking fan and on his Patreon, let me fucking tell you a little bit about it. But a little bit about this lady, she's the mayor of Chicago and she rules it like it's bananas some of the publicity stunts and whatnot that she's been up to over the years are just outrageous anyway just follow Tim Dillon's podcast just to hear what she gets up to a running commentary and what she gets up to but somebody in her office filed a fucking lawsuit against her so this is the exact words that I'm going to read out from the legal text here so 39 at all times in the plaintiff's handling of the suit against the Chicago Park District that he he did not owe any professional duty to the city of Chicago or the mayor of the city of Chicago while the defendants may have had police power to remove Christopher Columbus statue from Columbus Plaza in Arigo Park to maintain public order neither she nor the city of Chicago had any ownership interest in the statue or its disposition as agreed between the plaintiff's client and the JCCIA <clears throat> so this is obviously just the fucking preamble here this is the established facts I believe now here we go Neither the defendant nor the city of Chicago were a party to the letter agreement and a subsequent oral modification which would have allowed the JCCIA to keep the statue so long as they agreed to not display it within the city limits of the city of Chicago. Okay, so it's about removing a fucking Christopher Columbus statue. Contentious issue, of course. Tons of fucking Antifa and Italians have a vested interest in getting rid of it and keeping it, um, respectively. So... Nonetheless, on the Zoom call, the defendant proceeded to berate and defame plaintiff by saying the plaintiff and general counsel Timothy King you dicks what the fuck were you thinking you make some kind of secret agreement with italians what are you doing you are out there measuring your dicks with the italians seeing who's got the biggest dick you are out there stroking your dicks over the columbus statue i am trying to keep chicago police officers from being shot and you are trying to get them shot my dick is bigger than yours and the italians and the italians I have the biggest dick in Chicago. Where did you go to law school? Did you even go to law school? Do you even have a law license? Do you have to submit any pleadings to John Hendricks for approval before filing? John told you not to do a fucking thing with that statue without my approval. Get that fucking statue back before noon tomorrow or I am going to have you fired. Doggy. kind of wish it was my mayor. That is fucking crazy. Okay, so here we go. Here is a fucking... Dude, someone is suing Ed Sheeran wanting credit for writing Shape of You. (laughs) Fucking hell. What's going on in your life that you want fucking credit for writing an Ed Sheeran song? That is fucking disgusting. So there's a whole fucking horrifying Guardian article here about it. Ed Sheeran is a magpie who borrows ideas copyright trial hears. Look at his stupid fucking face. Ugh Ed Sheeran has been accused of being the magpie who allegedly borrows ideas from other artists for his songs on his first day of a three week copyright trial over his hit single Shape of You. Okay, where's the business end of this article? Where's the thing? What do you hear? Sheeran has already given the writers behind TLC's 90s hit No Scrubs a credit on, on Shape of You after comparisons were made between the two songs. So this fucker's out here robbing ideas all around him and fucking still coming up, like fucking putting two and two together and coming up with two somehow. Like, what the fuck? So that's just fucking horrible. Everyone involved in that sentence to death right away. Please and thank you. There's You're telling me it took fucking... Three people and however many people... ...plus however many people are in TLC... ...to write that heap of shit... ...also found out disturbingly through that article... ...that that's the most streamed song on Spotify... ...like... ...what the fuck is going on out there? Alright, so anyway, there we go... ...there's a couple of things... ...straight off the bat tonight... ...Laurie Lightfoot... ...and the fucking... ...Ed Sheeran fucking... ...is a fucking thief... ...a dirty rotten thief... ...you are very welcome to Punkadelic Podcast... Please rate the podcast if you're listening on Spotify. Rate it five stars. You're able to see it right there in the episode bio. Thank you to everyone that did take us up on that already and has rated the podcast. As soon as we got the ten likes or ten ratings, it shows up then permanently. So good work, folks. Um please don't also forget that you can share public. You can share publicly on Instagram, Punkadelic Podcast. You can put the links. The episodes or to the show itself, whatever you would want to do, that would be great. You'd be helping us out. And don't forget, you can always send questions to the podcast at Podcast on Instagram. Or you can use the voice messages feature on in, excuse me, the episode bio there get in touch with us let us know what the fuck is going on request that we do a particular episode on something that you want to hear about whatever you need to know whatever you need from punkadelic podcast that's what we're fucking here for the podcast for me is constantly growing we've seen the likes or excuse me the listens jump by about 60 in the last few days it's been fucking crazy um, since we hit 1k there's obviously a couple of people being like holy shit they hit a thousand what the fuck's going on over there so um that's it we're off to a cracking start tonight as i say that big review of mastodon is coming up me gushing just getting gay about this album. stone cold sober so dry gonna be so boring for so many of you but the guys the fucking three or four people out there that might get it like you will get it you'll know where i'm coming from i try to describe it like i try to write my notes like i was writing a review of it for a magazine sort of you know um but more disjointed i didn't really organize it into like an organized review i just went through sort of systematically so um take a listen let me know if you enjoy that review format or whatever that's just how it made sense to me to break down and review that type of album it's a 90 minute prog rock double album so there was a lot to really get into think about and extrapolate from it but i'm pretty pleased with how it went and just glad to have a platform here where i can talk about shit like that and Take left turns like just doing sections of it, Stone Cold Sober. So that'll be, you know, we'll probably have a bit of crack here now for a while. We do have stuff to talk about, stuff is coming up. We've got a lot of movies to talk about, we've got recommendations, there's books coming out, um we've got fighting to talk about. And uh, then also, don't ever forget that we are the home of the best segment in podcasting, Walloper Watch. That's coming up at the end of the show. We've got some pictures this week, as ever. Now, on with the show for right fucking now. What's up first? Okay, I've got to go across here. I've got another news link. No idea what this is about. Oh, here we go, yeah. Oh, I love when I surprise myself with these things. Florida teacher beaten and hospitalized after attack by five-year-old student police say. The victim could blink and breathe regularly but was not able to vocally respond following beating at Pines Lake Elementary School in Pembroke Pines. A South Florida teacher was taken to hospital last week after she was attacked by a five-year-old student leaving her dazed and unresponsive. Well, it's nice to hear a story that doesn't involve teachers having sex with their students for a damn change, I guess. But the troubling incident started when a five-year-old boy had to be removed from class for throwing things around and flipping the chairs, police said. The youngster was taken to an empty cool-down room where the attack on the teacher allegedly took place, police said. The teacher was taken to the hospital, blah, blah, blah. The young suspect is still being investigated for possible aggravated assault with hands, fists and feet. It's unlikely he'll be criminally prosecuted. Okay, well, yeah, it didn't go down in Texas, baby. Prosecutors will be hard-pressed to show that this five-year-old had the ability to distinguish right from wrong, the police representative said. The victim in her late 30s or early 40s is about five foot four with a slender frame. She suffered a concussion and other injuries after the enraged special ed student between 50 and 60 pounds unleashed on the teacher. So it's a group with special needs. The way he pounced on her and the way she fell backwards and smacked her head, it was a severe concussion. She's got other bodily injuries from him jumping on her, attacking her, kicking, punching, biting. That's going to lead to surgery. I love this as part of the fucking principles thing. At all times during the incident, our campus was secured. (laughs) This was not a mass shooting incident. Don't confuse it with it. Jesus Christ. So, like, fucking gonna get beat up by a five year old. I mean, like, that's pretty embarrassing. That is pretty fucking embarrassing. I gotta say. So, so, top TV recommendation for you, Punk Files, as I like to give out every now and then. So, this is not like a world beater. This isn't a show that I'm having up there with the likes of The Sopranos or The Wire or Game of Thrones, but a show that I'm thoroughly enjoying just because I've just decided this is going to be my show now because it's based on a book by an author that I like, who I'm going to recommend you a book from in a moment to illustrate that point. The show is called Justified. It started in 2009. It's got uh, Timothy Oliphant. who is a US Marshal it's based on Elmore Leonard's short story called Fire in the Hole Walton Goggins who you'll know Walton Goggins excuse me Walton Goggins who you'll know from Django Unchained on the Hateful Eight is Raylan given the Marshal's childhood friend turned arch criminal so when Raylan at the start of the series moves back to his hometown um, things up to his eyes and being a fucking lunatic so the two of them just go head to head over different things and it twists and turns and it's just like, you know, the stakes are sort of low enough in terms of how good of a show it is that like I'm not so invested in it, but I can just keep enjoying it. And I'm feeling like by the end of season six, I'm going to be hyper invested. And the beautiful part is that they are re- resurrecting it with a legacy series, uh, which may or may not have two episodes directed by Tarantino himself, and will be based on a book that a novel ...that uh, Leonard wrote about that character. Apparently Leonard wrote about that character a number of times. So, Elmore Leonard are also our guy... ...because he wrote the book that Jackie Brown is based on... ...also wrote a fantastic uh, bunch of Western short stories... ...and they're all available. The Elmore Leonard Western short story collection. I would highly, highly recommend you get that. I've recommended it on here before, but... ...I don't mind repeating myself. Like, I'll double down on a recommendation. Just the antidote to all the fucking... ...blue lights going up into the sky... ...fucking blockbusters... ...people getting resurrected... ...shows that are fucking four or five seasons long... ...just like... ...short western stories... ...getting to the point of the matter... ...people, you know... ...have guns one minute... ...don't have guns... ...then they're in trouble... ...you know... ...the stakes are always... ...life or death... ...basically because it's out in Arizona... ...so... ...if they don't get to go home... ...if they don't get water... ...if they don't blah blah blah... ...so... ...they just don't have options... ...and it's like... drive some really good characters... And uh, Writes fantastic dialogue, so that's why it's lent itself really well to this TV show. I don't. I think he was alive for the first couple of seasons. He is dead now, unfortunately. Um, but some stellar acting, definitely plenty to latch onto there. Good fucking laid-back TV show. Get into it if if I've, if that if that resonates with you. If you know what I'm talking about, go for it. Now, also, what about uh, Michael Mann is writing? heat 2 as a novel and it's coming out in fucking august $35 on pre-order as a hardback and then he is also working on his next film so I'm psyched obviously about the novel I mean who the fuck doesn't want to know so the novel is going to serve as both sequel so we'll see what happened afterwards and prequel so we'll get to know sort of how that crew came together I believe And it's just like, oh, hell yeah. Who doesn't want to know more about what that crew used to be up to in Heat? That's a fucking... That's money. Get that made. All right. So then I also have this article that's going to tell us about what Michael Mann is going to do for his next film project. Heat director Michael Mann is getting closer to the start line on his passion project, Ferrari, thanks to some strong new cast and a big domestic deal. We can reveal that Oscar nominee Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, Shailene Woodley, and more are newly aboard for the big-budget biopic of racing mogul Enzo Ferrari. Driver is replacing Hugh Jackman in the title role, while Cruz will play his wife. Oh, Woodley will play the mistress, and it's going to start filming in May in Italy. The movie, which Mann has been working on for two decades, is set during the summer of 1957. Ex-race car driver Ferrari is in crisis. Bankruptcy stalks the company he and his wife Laura built from nothing 10 years earlier. Their tempestuous marriage struggles with mourning for their one son and the acknowledgement of another. He decides to counter his losses by rolling the dice on one race, 1000 miles across Italy, the iconic Mille Miglia. God, I probably butchered that. The project has famously been through multiple iterations, but this is as far along as the casting has been at any stage. Man will direct from a script by Troy Kennedy Martin, who's credited here as writing the Italian job remake script. It's like, oh, that's the best we've got here. Um, and Man, based on oh, Man's also having written, and it's based on Brock Yates's book Enzo Ferrari: The Man and the Machine. So yeah, there you go. Adam Driver playing Enzo Ferrari. Penelope Cruz playing the wife and then there's a mistress on the scene, so there's gonna be fucking fighting in there. We're gonna have Penelope Cruz going fucking Latina hysterics and uh Michael Mann's directing. Like I am fucking here for that. I need to see that I need to get more well-versed also in Michael Mann's fucking history. I need to see Thief. I need to see Manhunter. I need to know more about what this man can do. As you know, I'm totally fucking gay for heat. Um so here also, while we're talking movies. This is slowly just becoming a movie nerd podcast, so, although this week it is predominantly about progressive metal, like, slowly but surely it is just turning into a fucking movie nerd podcast, and I'm not against it, like, it's just, you know, that's just where I'm at right now, and, uh There's going to be some crazy movie reviews coming up on the podcast soon. You're going to want to stick around, all right? It's going to be a good year. This is what I want to know about movies, so this is why I've got an article called Zack Snyder's Netflix movie Rebel Moon, What We Know So Far. Production on Zack Snyder's new sci-fi movie Rebel Moon will get underway soon. Here's your rundown on everything you need to know. Bingo. Now get to the point succinctly here. Snyder, teaming up with Netflix once again to produce and direct his next major project, Rebel Moon, the new movies, are described as an epic sci-fi adventure with a Star, Wars, a Star Wars in terms of scope and scale. Okay, so it's that size. Okay, here's an updated look at what we can expect from Rebel Moon and everything we know so far. Zack Snyder will direct and co-write the film with, and will reunite with many of his colleagues from past projects. The script for Rebel Moon will be co-written by Shea Hatton, who co-wrote army of the dead and kurt Johnstadt who worked on 300 with snyder the stone quarry is the main production company blah blah who gives a fuck about the production companies snyder commented on the inspiration you are very welcome to another punkadelic <clears throat> you are very welcome to another punkadelic podcast album review today we are focusing on the eighth album from atlanta sludge metal progressive metal legends mastodon The album is called Hushed and Grim. It's the eighth studio album from them. It's a double. It came out last October on Reprise Records. It is the longest album in the band's catalogue to date. And it is the... The album serves as a tribute to their late manager, Nick John, following his death from cancer in 2018. Big fans of Mastodon will also note that they released Stairway to Nick, um, an EP which contained their cover of Stairway to Heaven, which is a song that Nick John's wife asked them to perform at his funeral. So um, as with all of the best Mastodon albums, it is born out of the band's personal tragedies. And they take these things that they're feeling and that happened to them and they turn it round into slabs of molten prog sludge, crushingly heavy sometimes, but with, all of the bells and whistles that any self-respecting prog rock band needs. Just, Mastodon are a fantastic band. If you've listened to this podcast a lot, you'll know that I'm a huge fan. The um, And I'm a huge fan, despite like the first hundred times I heard Mastodon's music, I was roundly turned off completely. It's like, it's very idiosyncratic. It's got a lot of personality. And it is... About whipping up these milestones of riffs and thunder, so that it can be tempered with more melodic moments. It's a, it's a real mishmash of things going on in Mastodon sound, but heaviness, lightness, everything is always present. And uh, just to give you, like this album for me, it's a ten out of ten. It is incredible. I think as prog rock fans, we have maybe wanted Mastodon to do something like this for a while, and it just the results are absolutely stunning. So, to get a little bit more into the details of the themes of this album and how and why this came about, I'm going to leave a link to an excellent Revolver magazine uh, article in the in the in the bio for this episode, which is an excellent interview with the four guys and. You will learn a lot more about them and about this album. You'll be excited to hear this album. And in my in my personal opinion, that is what good music journalism should do. It should get you fucking pumped up to go and listen to it. It should point out where the highlights are. And, you know, I'm not really super keen on reviews pointing out lowlights, but if there's like a total duffer on an album, let's go for it. Mercifully, that's not something that I'm going to have to contend with here today. So... We're going to break this album down in a way that makes sense to me here today. I don't know if this is like a good way to do reviews, but with a 90-minute Mastodon album, there is really, really quite a lot to talk about. And I'm no music theorist. I cannot play an instrument. I don't know anything like that. But I've spent so much time in my life listening to metal, and I'm such a huge fan of hard rock and heavy metal that... You know, I, I, I sort of know what I'm talking about at this stage. All right. So trust me, come with me. We'll get into this breakdown. We're going to go through our overall impressions. We're going to break it down track by track. We're going to break it down side by side as though we were listening to it on vinyl. And then we're going to break down each of the four members uh contributions. And we're going to look into the production. Then I'm going to pick out my favorite moments, my favorite tracks. And then I'll be back to the show. Just so you know exactly how seriously I'm taking this, I am stone cold sober. I wanted to come on here and just try and let my enthusiasm for this band and this music speak for itself. So it's possible that I'll get pissed off of myself tripping over my own words and stuff and throw all of this out. But if this winds up being, if it winds up working out for me, sober, I will record the rest of this week's episode really messed up immediately afterwards. And we'll have a nice contrast there, just like Mastodon would do. Okay, so um, let's just get into it. I wrote a ton of notes on this. I'm not sure I really finished writing these notes, but as I say, it's a super long album that it kind of demands to be digested by itself, but I haven't really had the opportunity to do that. Now, I have heard every track on it a bunch of times now, but I still think I've maybe only done one listen all the way through, but I I made a real effort to make that special. The first time I heard it, it's got everyone in the house here away to bed, Cleared off the floor, uh, cleared all the coffee tables and stools away, pulled the rug into the middle, got a star lamp to project galaxies onto the ceiling, laid back and pumped it through my headphones. And, uh, you know, the uh, liberal application of psilocybin mushrooms into your bloodstream before listening to this album will improve it immensely. Like, what was it Bill Kelleher said about the last Mastodon album? It's like, you don't have to be on drugs to listen to our music. But if you are on drugs, you might really, really dig what we're doing here. So that's where we're coming from. So, uh, yeah, I guess then, without any fucking further ado, let's get into it. So I wanted to start this review then with uh, my overall impressions. Okay, what, like, I'm not going to lure you into to listen to a 90-minute album uh by immediately starting to fixating on one thing within one song. So let's talk about this as an album, as a 90 minute long piece of work. This album re- retains a certain amount of the vibes that Mastodon were going for on Cold Dark Place. It's haunting. It is slow in places, most definitely slow. Um, funereal, you might say. Um, I guess that's kind of just another way of saying slow. It just shows you what a bad writer I am, but slow. Funereal, Mastodon's doomiest record to date, that is something I would absolutely stand over, the doom factor is dialed up on this album, now obviously it's Mastodon so they riff out and they do crazy different things but there are a ton of super big reverby doomy moments on this album, we'll get to it all in time but as an overall impression that's a good one to take away, if you like doom metal and you like Mastodon, you're going to shit over this album. So I find that the way the album, the flow of the album, it kind of winds its way I mean, with Mastodon and the left turns that their music can take and the changes in time signature and the different sections and the strange arrangements. Um, it winds its way progressively towards this centre of two tracks right in the middle, which are called Pushing the Tides and Teardrinker, which are like two big alt-rock songs that could have fit on Emperor of Sand, where that is not something you can say about every track on this album. Emperor of Sand had a a vaguely alt-rock bent to it. It was Mastodon at their most mainstream, acceptable commercial. Now, that's still not... That doesn't make them a pop band, that doesn't make them the Foo Fighters, but it was their most... The time that they leaned most towards that end of the scale of the darkness of their music. But at the center of Hushed and Grimm, we have Teardrinker and Pushing the Tides, which retains some of that alt-rock vibe from Emperor of Sands. So it's like Mastodon never leave anything behind them. They only develop on stuff that they've done before. They only seem to get better with age. It's like a really, really fine wine. So those two tracks feel like a an oasis of alt-rock in a desert of fucking prog, and the what the build-up to get to that section on the album, and then what happens after that, are prog perfection. Like, just, you get everything you could want. I like how this album splits into sides on the vinyl release. We'll break down exactly how that looks a little bit later, um, but if you were to consider it as four EPs, each one would have sort of its own distinct flavor. I find that this album contains Mastodon's biggest and best ballad to date. Had It All is probably not the Mastodon song that I'm going to visit the most often, because it's a highly emotionally charged song, um, dedicated obviously to their late manager, and, you know, it's like a family affair... Troy Sanders' mum plays French horn on it and there is a guest guitar solo from Kim Thale from Soundgarden which is like very like grungy, anti-solo but it sounds like something that Brent Hines would play a little bit also. Definitely Had It All is one you're going to want to check out. If you like that emotional side of Mastodon this is one of their better songs in that vein to date. Now having said that, this album also has Significantly heavier moments than the band's course through the last three albums would suggest. So if you've been following the band, you know, they moved through that four, at the start of their career, they moved through that four album suite. Uh, Remission, Leviathan, Blood Mountain, Crack the Sky, all based on the four ancient elements. Um Fire for remission, that's why it's so fiery and metal-y and just about screaming. Leviathan, which is a concept album based on Moby Dick, obviously based around the element of water. Blood Mountain, a concept album that tells the story of a central character trying to ascend a skull mountain and trying to find enlightenment in the form of a crystal skull, but is ultimately defeated at the Siberian Divide, Uh, represents the traditional classical element of earth. And then Crack the Sky, which tells the story of a paraplegic who learns how to astral project, but runs into the astral projection of Rasputin and spirals up through a crack in the sky and is tethered to the material world is lost. That was them exploring the themes of death and loss of uh, Brand Dealer's sister by suicide when he was 14. So that's the first sweep of their career, the four-album suite. Then they move into The Hunter, Once More Around the Sun, which are like weird, eclectic, not concept albums at all. And introducing newer and lighter textures, um, bumping up Brand's position as lead vocalist in the band and moving away from the heavily progressive concepts of of the previous four albums. Then with Emperor of Sand... They brought it back, but it's still also that alt-rock commercial accessibility. However, it does have huge prog numbers in Roots Remain and Jaguar God. I would also suggest that things like Sultan's Curse are very prog on there, but, you know, it's like a three and a half minute tune, so it's like short and punchy for Mastodon. So the point being there is that with the very, very heavy progressive metal start to their career, then a sort of a chilling out and a move through different textures different rock textures that they've been exploring then to try and come back to conceptualism and metal but making it commercially accessible to have come through into this album and have it be as heavy as it is was kind of a total surprise for me i was i was kind of shocked um as i say as a fan i didn't feel like that was the direction they were going in but clearly they've proved me and a whole bunch of internet haters completely wrong there is that cabal of mastodon fans that are like oh they've never done anything better than remission but it's like dude that was like gnarly down tuned fucking sludge you know it's not that hard to execute compared to the likes of a crack the sky or indeed a hushed and grim so if you're a mastodon fan that has got moved away from the band dude get back in right fucking now But also this album has softer moments than I can ever remember hearing um, from Mastodon before. Case in point, listen to the breathy female vocal intro to Sickle and Peace. And then listen to the riffing that happens immediately after that in Sickle and Peace. Sickle and Peace is the third song on the record. And listen to that intro, that strange sort of... I don't know really how to describe that, but it's like not metal, it's... Interesting sort of chicken-picking thing that Brent Hines obviously brings to the table. And listening to that, it's very, very hard to understand that this is the same band that made Leviathan and Blood and Thunder. But they just have that range. Everything they do is executed perfectly. Um, This is also an album, first and foremost. This all combines to paint one single picture. But throughout the collection of 15 tracks, we get treated to every trick in Mastodon's book. Which is, you know, a significantly more full bag of tricks than a lot of other bands have to play with. There's also tons and tons of spacey synthesizer stuff going on. Like, Crack the Sky levels, like Clandestiny from the last Mastodon record. But, whereas the synth on Clandestiny from Emperor of Sand was like, here is an extended solo section that is a synthesizer solo. Pretty much every single time that there's synthesizers on this record... It's like integrated in the part of the music and it's like it's not necessarily in the foreground, although it does come to the foreground on a couple of tracks, notably um, Skeleton of Splendor and on Gobblers of Dregs. So again, something that they've been doing for a while, taken and now just refined to a point that it's a part of their sound and it can come up and totally change the mood of the song and then fade back into the distance when they need to go riff out or whatever it is that the song is about to change and do i find that troy sanders is having a lot much is uh, much more prominent on this album the bass makes itself known and felt more often um with mastodon's production the bass isn't always there the guitars are just doing things that are so fucking complicated you want that to shine through but it's he's much more prominent this time around and he makes a lot more of an impact when it when it's raised up in the mix on this album, you feel it, you notice it, it's right there. This is something that I've wanted from Mastodon for years. Like, obviously they're one of the greatest bands of all time, you know, the most complicated progressive bands that write stuff that we'll still be dissecting and trying to understand in a hundred years probably. But just, I've always had a little bit of a gripe with the production. I think it comes with from their sludge metal roots, but I would just love a big, glossy, modern rock production done on Mastodon, but with like, players of their talent to have those all shining through so crystalline it's something that i would love but it's something that they don't always do because they've got those sludge metal roots so there's always a little bit of distortion or the bass isn't necessarily always there so that the guitars can shine through and i am telling you that going through their career like that so that now the impact can be made when it's really really needed on this album that they need to do an emotional punch with dude it rocks so I'll say this as the last word on my overall thoughts about this album. There is an epic quality about this album. It's epic. It's long. The songs are long. The songs, there's maybe only one that's less than five minutes long. And there's a number that go six, seven, eight minutes. Now, there's no 14 minuteer on here. There's no Last Baron. Um, But there is an eight-minute in Gobblers of Dregs. And again... This is kind of meant to be consumed in in one sitting. So if your favorite tune from the album doesn't have your favorite guitar solo, it's like, well, you know, they weren't going to put all their eggs in one basket. There's an egg in every basket, I would say, on this album. What's really, really, really stunning about this record is that that epic quality is there at both the macro level, so in terms of the album's length and its scope and everything that it tries to do, but at the micro level, so within each track, there is a definite sense of drama to the arrangements and the chord progressions. And when the tunes morph and twist into the bridges, um, there is a hugely cinematic dynamism to the tracks. They live and they breathe, they ebb and they flow, and they embody the yin and the yang that Macedon's work often does. And I just want to underscore this point, like cinematic quality. When these tunes, like you know, they'll get through maybe a chorus and a verse... And then or come in some sort of change of tempo or maybe the synths start or maybe it's time for a solo. It's, you know, and it's, ne- it's master, they're never shredding. It's always in service of the song. You know, this isn't like a dream theater progressive metal band. It's not like get through a verse, get the singer off the stage, drum solo, bass solo, keyboard solo, guitar solo, done, right? Mastered on are always trying to work it into the song. And I just, I just want to keep repeating this. There's a cinematic quality. It's dramatic when these songs change pace or change tempo or time signature, it's like like you feel it in your headphones. It's like as I say, it's just it's a very, very cinematic quality. It's like they're writing fiction through music. Does if that makes sense to you. So although this album doesn't have a super well defined concept, although there is a little bit of conceptual stuff going on there, um I don't know if I actually wrote notes on this. I don't think I could actually find a really, really good breakdown of it. So that's on me, apologies, but there is a little bit of a concept about how uh, when you die, your soul goes into the tree that's on the cover of the album, and then the different branches uh, represent different parts of your life, and that's why there's different animals on different branches on the cover. Um, I actually need to get a copy of the album so I can really study that cover. Um, But yeah, just wanted to really underline that. This is like very, very cinematic music. It's got an epic quality, and it is It's huge. It's awesome. I couldn't be any more in love with it, and I'm so delighted that we're going to keep breaking it down for another while. I think that sometimes albums like this come out, and, you know, every rock magazine will write three or 400 words on it, and maybe they'll get an interview with the guys, but, you know, this is a 90-minute album, and you're telling me I can't talk about it for 40 minutes? I think that's the least I could do for Mastodon, to be honest. All right, here we go. So let's break this down track by track. Um... Pain with an anchor starts off with a massive drum roll, then chills out for a little bit. But trust me, you're going to want to hang in there with that track because the outro is massive. Really fucking huge. Then we move into the Crux, which is another kind of prog rocker. Sickle and Peace, by far, I think, the proggiest and weirdest track on the record. That's Masked on fucking about with time signatures and textures and different bits and pieces to a really, really high degree, and... As I said, it's got female vocals in the intro, super strange riffing. People are going to love that one. If you're into the weirder side of things, if you're like an Opeth fan, you're going to shit over that. More than I can chew. Definitely one of my favorites in the record. This is big, apocalyptic. Like it's got reverb that comes. It feels like it's in... It feels like this song is being played by them in another dimension. And that's the level of reverb that's on those crushing Doom riffs. Great track. The Beast. This is obviously the song that Brent's had the most input into on the album. Um, Starts off with real chicken picking and his vocals. uh, And then moves into a real, real rock and middle section with a guest guitar solo from Marcus King, a blues player. Skeleton of Splendor is the track that I believe is lyrically most dedicated to Nick John. This is grand. It's gothic. It's retain, this is what's really retaining those cold, dark place vibes. It's grand. It's gothic. It's spacey and it's synthy. The synth is working on here. This is one of the best tracks to hear the synth, the synthesizer playing that's been integrated into their sound. On Teardrinker, track seven, there is a bass solo. They brought back the bass solo, for God's sake. Pushing the Tides, that's the only track that doesn't, that is less than four minutes long. It is sick. It's uh cut a fit on Emperor's sound quite well. Great track. Peace and Tranquility, feels like five songs in one. That's another one with different movements. The Dagger, this, or maybe it's just called Dagger, actually, not quite sure. But this is a wildly fun extended drum break you know there's a I think there's like a perfunctory verse at the start and then it's just bran conjuring up all kinds of atmosphere there's those mystical eastern tones that every prog release must have and all kinds of bells and whistles and i think maybe an additional percussionist helping them out there just really really like when have you ever thought about oh the drum break on an album was really really good i mean it's been a fucking while Had It All is their best ballad to date and has that big guest guitar solo from Kim from Soundgarden. Savage Lands might be the best track on the album. A kick-ass intro, heavily Blood Mountain vibes. If you missed the Mastodon that made Blood Mountain, this is the track for you on this album. There's tons of screaming vocals, but they're buried under layers of other shit that's going on so you feel like you're getting screamed at. you feel like it is that old master's on but it's doing so much else there's the bridge in the song is almost the entire reason that i wrote that whole note that whole section about how epic and cinematic and dramatic this album is when a song decides to change direction you're like holy fuck this is the best fucking example of that on the album and then it's got a kick-ass solo, which is uh, like a doom solo. It like brings the doom fucking hard. This is a cosmic fucking track. If you like the like blasteroid, the spacey side of Mastodon, this one as well. So imagine a song that was on both Blood Mountain and Crack the Sky. But also, don't forget that it's exclusively from Hushed and Grim, and it still all makes sense. I'm very, very taken by this song. Gobblers of Dregs. Maybe they got themselves a stew going. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm quoting Carl Weathers from uh, Arrested Development. And it's just, this is just one of those tracks where they just kick into a groove where Bran is doing crazy things. And, you know, Bran's not like your traditional metal drummer. He doesn't just roll on the double kicks. He would much, much, much rather just do extended rolls, drum rolls, that is, across all of the toms and have the big, Rolling lethargic fucking fills, but that are just like slow and doomy. And Gobblers of drags is like his funky seventies classic rock drumming, really real, really dialed up. So like, think when the drums, when when things really got cooking on Jaguar God. Think that vibe. Gobblers of Dregs is this album's Jaguar God. It is incredible. They bring the funk. The solo is epic. The synth is huge on this track. It is, I know I've said this for a couple of them already, but I think Gobblers has to be my favorite track from this record. And maybe the, well, I think Gobblers of Dregs or Savage Lands. If you if you forced me to pick a song that was this album, that was a microcosm of this entire album, I would say it would have to be Savage Lands or Gobblers of Dregs. Eyes of Serpents is a slow burner long build up but has maybe the best solo on the album and then the final track gigantium is like a kind of a departure from acid and a kind of a departure from the rest of the album in that it's quite hopeful and major key and happy and you're like what the fuck are these boys doing but again it's you know it's rounding out the album so we've had all the yang here's the fucking yin you know what i'm saying at the very very end it's long it's got a big guitar solo and it ends on like a kind of a plaintive cello note and it's just like yeah that's the right thing to do because no one member of the band should have had the last note on the album because they are so jailed together as a band on this album that it's just I say this about a whole bunch of things, but we are just lucky to have Mastodon. We're lucky that we were alive at the time that they were releasing new music. Everyone that's born after this point is going to have to go back and find Mastodon. We were right there for it. All right, so you're still with me, everybody. Um, We have broken down our overall thoughts about the album, and then we've gone track by track. Then I'm going to do something else here, and we're going to go side by side. So we're going to look at how this album splits up onto vinyl. Uh, okay, so. Okay, so your first four tracks, Pain with an Anchor, The Crux, Sickle and Peace, and More Than I Could Chew, really reflect like a doom prog side of Mastodon. It's a certain flavour that's right there, and that would be an awesome first 20 minutes of listening. Moving in next, then we get The Beast, Skeleton of Splendour, Teardrinker, and Pushing the Tides. So you get The Beast, which is the most Brent Hines song on the album, Skeleton of Splendor, which is the one most dedicated to Nick John, and both of the alt-rock, um, the alt-rockiest songs on the album. So, although Brent is taking you somewhere Brenty, which is always the strangest part of Mastodon, and, you know, there's twangy chicken-picking country infusions on there, but very spacey midsection, and then Skeleton of Splendor, which is their most considered and dedicated to Nick John. So the first half of this four-track side, you know, is giving you a lot, to, a lot to think about, a lot to chew on. So then it's balancing that out then by giving you a lot to rock out with on the second half. Then again, the next, um, what would be the next side of vinyl would be Peace and Tranquility, Dagger, Had It All, and Savage Lands. So again, we're balancing the yin and the yang almost perfectly here. Peace and Tranquility is epic and feels like five songs. Dagger is weird and mystical and has that extended brand, uh drum break in there. So then that's given you a lot to think about. So it's Peace and Tranquility, which feels like five songs. The Dagger definitely it feels like a solo because it's just Bran being accented by different percussion players. Then we bring in To Had It All, which is the ballad and it's affecting and it's got that guitar solo. But to balance this whole EP out then, it closes on Savage Lands, which is the most rockin' intro, the uh, most metal intro on the album. And that rounds out that side of the vinyl. And then for our last side of vinyl, we have the three longest and most epic songs on the album. So this one has got the most pronounced flavor, the most easily attributable single flavor and that is gobblers of dregs eyes of serpents and gigantium So the long jammy songs where they're trying to wrap everything up so looking at it here on wikipedia as well see that we've only got two brent hines writing credits on here but that's you know that's completely to be oh sorry excuse me that's uh that's lead vocals all tracks are written by mastodon yeah i guess they don't split those so um yeah, there's only a couple of tracks with lead vocals from Brent Hines on this album, which some people have complained about. But given the quality of the interplay between uh, Troy Sanders and Brand Dealer these days, I don't think anybody's going to give a shit. But there you go. That's another way of looking at it. Just how does it go side by side? And the answer is perfectly, as with everything about this album, splits up into four nicely differently flavored um, EPs, if you like to think about it that way. So how does this compare to their discography so far? Well, as I explained already, it's in the vein of their original first four suites of albums in that it's big and epic and progressive and they're indulging a lot of their tendencies. But every trick that they had learned on um The Hunter, Once More Around the Sun and Emperor of Sand can be said to be present and correct on the album. It's just that this feels a lot more like they're revisiting some of their heydays and you know bringing some of those alt rock things with them but trying to focus on the on the sludge and the metal again and i would say that there are largely elements of blood mountain on here crack the sky certainly those are the two albums that loom the largest from their discography on this one and i feel like although they're not my favorites those are the two consensus by critics and fans their best albums Although it's not my absolute favorite, I would say, you know, Blood Mountain is their most technically accomplished album. I think it's just, it just they nailed that concept and they also had some mainstream acceptability there. You know, it's not quite as abrasive as, well, I mean, it's nowhere near as abrasive as Leviathan for my money. I, you know, comparisons to other albums, I don't think are necessarily, other albums in their discography are necessarily so useful here because it's most definitely its own thing and it's and it's so excellent, and it retains little bits of everything that's gone before. Those comparisons, you know, I did them for you, but trust me, this is its own thing. All right, how are the vocals on this album? And the vocals are largely clean. Not a ton of screaming on here, Um, although it does feel very, very metal in places. And just tons of interplay between Troy and Bran, and, you know, those two are just getting to be better singers all the time. And to be honest, it's very, very impressive on this album. Um, you know, the vocals never, ever take away from it. And just, they're lucky to have three distinct singers that they can all draw different textures from to work with each track. So uh, that's uh, that's stronger than ever. Bad vocals are something they always level at Mastodon, on, especially live. But in the studio, when they can do the wizardry and they can trick it up, they are nailing it these days. So with the bass, we talked about how much more prominent the bass is. There's a solo in Teardrinker. So he is getting... Musically, Troy is uh, a lot more prominent on this album, uh, whereas previously his bass was kind of, uh, you know, it was here and there in, in, like, very, very audible places on albums. But in this one, there are moments where he is just electrifying. So, awesome. So, drums then. Uh, at the album level, I just suspect that the mere mortal will never understand just how great Brand dealer is. Like, it's just impossible. The soups that he is fucking... Cooking up there with those sticks are just crazy. um When you think about Masanon's music, you think that he records the drum tracks first and everything else goes on top of that. So it's just mind blowing. Like it must so- look and sound insane him just playing the drums there. Maybe they have demoed guitars, but absolutely mind blowing. Also on this album, that funky 70s rock groove that I talked about that he does sometimes. They slip into that groove very, very comfortably a couple of times on this album. Um, look look into it on Peace and Tranquility and Gobblers of Dregs. They're the best examples that I could think of of that beat on this album. You know, he's amazing. He's stunning. He's not like really any other metal drummer. And um, I always love to see him dicking about with his extra percussion in the studio in the behind-the-scenes videos, the timpanies, the bells, the whistles, just into it. And... Obviously, he also has that huge showcase in Dagger. So, yeah, he's present and correct. He's doing all kinds of brand shit on this album. Uh, Guitar riffs. All right, so there's nothing in the really, really catchy Mastodon range here. There's not like a Blood and Thunder or the Curl of the Burl here. But the guitar riffs are always used a massive effect within the songs. When the thunder comes, it fucking comes. Mastodon, Mastodon are often just not doing things the straightforward way. And on many places in this album, they see that borne out. It's just always in the service of the song. I would say the More Than I Can Chew intro was a standout. It is just huge impact. It's kind of like brutal and ugly and simplistic and, you know, brutally simplistic, excuse me, but huge. The doom is real on that track. For fucking real. All right, guitar solos then. This is another major source of that ever-present epic quality that we've talked about on this album. Really, really, really spacey, totally in the vein of what Brent Hines was doing on Crack the Sky, and plenty of them too, and more Brent soloing is always a good thing for me, lots and lots of his spacey reverb, cosmic tone, and tons of that cocked wah, just, that's his signature sound, and he's sounding great. The synthesizers, these are a huge part of this album and in a number of places they really, really, really elevate the songs. It's not just there to provide like an air of spaciness like it was on Crack the Sky. These are awesome. They're getting a lot better at integrating that. Or the production of the album. Look, I am no expert on this, but it seems that whatever they needed from this new producer, they got. They've just turned in their best album, so something must have been going right. Everything that needs to simmers and reverbs and warbles really, really pleasingly in the background where it's necessary. And it just creates these gilded moments across the album. Um, So they've got some new textures in here and it sounds like they're a refreshed band and they've just turned in, as I say, their career best. So there has to be some credit deserved there for the new producer. Um, I really defy anybody to listen to Gobblers of Dregs and argue that... um, this, this, this isn't their career best album. Um, this producer, David Bottrill, previously worked on Tools Lateralist, Muse's Origin of Symmetry, and Peter Gabriel's So. So this is a dude with production fucking pedigree, alright? This guy is quite clearly a bit of a genius. And has also worked with Smashing Pumpkins, Dream Theater, and produced the Stone Sour double album. So that's the kind of pedigree we're working with here. It's not like, you know, they didn't produce themselves, they didn't go back to their usual Brent and O'Brien, and just... Something brand new and it's given them the best results of their career for my money. So the most progressive moments on the album. I would say the choral vocals underneath the major riff at the end of Pain with an Anchor. That's kind of a new thing for them. Sickle and Peace is the proggiest. Uh, Might be the best summation or encapsulation of this album in one track. And I know I'm contradicting myself because I've already said that Savage Lands or Gobblers of Dregs might be. But I'm very conflicted on this but certainly those are three that could be considered to be the album in microcosm. Sickle and Peace, you know, just so proggy, starts with a weird sample, has strange Opeth-esque riffing, it's got like these tremolo guitar stabs, Uh, Brand Dealer cuts fucking loose, and there's a huge solo that goes out on like a dirge, like a fucking big doomy thing, backed with more choral vocal effects. And then like a fake ending, you know, where you think the song's ended and then it's like, and comes fucking back. Then with the last 30 seconds, reintroduces the melody again and then goes back out on a droning repetitive bass note. So there's a lot going on in there. You're going to take a couple of listens to get your ears around that one. And across the album... When tunes start to change direction, it's kind of like a dizzying, spiralling feeling that's brought on by just these those really active parts where the tunes are just warping and changing and they're doing different things. Um, unbelievable. Really, really brought the prog in this album. Unreal. That's exactly what we want, right? We've all heard standard heavy metal. We've all heard blues rock. We've like These guys are out there. They're just being... They're out there being, you know, Genesis or Yes for our generation, and it's it is mind blowing. For every member of the band, what are their best individual moments on the album? For Brown, the drummer, it's got to be Dagger, like that extended break where he just gets to do all the things he wants. That's awesome. But in terms of within a song, because like they, they just, as I, I'm going to repeat myself a bunch in this, because you know. Like I just am, but they come together as a band and gel and mesh so well. You just it's hard to pick out individual elements of what's making a song so good sometimes. But Brand's performance in Savage Lands is monstrous. For Brent Hines, obviously the beast where he has lead vocals and it's like very, very clearly influenced by him. Uh like it's one of probably one of the ones that he had a bigger hand in writing on this album. And then, of course, Eyes of Serpents is the best guitar solo on the album, so that's a huge moment for him also. With Bill Kelleher then, Bill Kelleher writes all the riffs, so it could be anything from this. So, But also, I believe that he plays the synths. Um, I think that a lot of the time, the synths that you hear in Mastodon are him playing through a guitar synth pedal. A left field choice for his best moment of the album, and say, A Skeleton of Splendor. Now I could be mistaken maybe the producer played the synths for this album I'm not quite sure but anything riffy any part of this album where it's riffy and driven by the riff then Bill probably wrote that part so the end of pain with an anchor that might be his best moment. For Troy I'm very 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 clear I don't have I only have one I'm so clear on what his best moments on here Troy's bass part that underpins the solo in Gobblers of Dregs is huge. It's probably my favorite bass part in a Mastodon song ever. Produced with perfect tone, played perfectly, matches everything else that's going on in there. It's a perfect song. So I don't know. There might be something intangible here that I am not explaining very well, or don't like I'm not able to explain. That's possible too. Like I'm not a fucking journalist. Um I'm a deckhead with a podcast. But it fucking hits the spot. It's so satisfying. It's so good to hear like chunky bass tone and Mastodon's music. Incredible moment. What are the best moments for them as an entire band? So the end of Pain with an Anchor, as I say, that section is huge. Comes kind of out of the blue. Once Gobblers of Dregs gets going, going, and Bran introduces that funk beat at about the five minute mark, that's an incredible moment. Then you also know that you're about a minute and a half away from that point of Troy's fabulous best bass performance on a Mastodon song and that gigantic solo, and the synths are kicking off on that song. Gobblers is incredible. The intro to The Crux, they're really jailed together as a band. That's them riffing fucking hard. In the middle of The Beast, uh, Brent handles the intro and the outro, but in the center, you can. It's just. All of them at once, the all four personalities right there, making the perfect racket. In the intro to Peace and Tranquility, it's like so off kilter and weird. Um, they're kicking up a real fucking milestone in there, but then to drop out of that section straight into a beautiful, beautiful lead melody, and uh, Brent is singing the next part. That makes a that's got a big effect right there. Peace and Tranquility, another great song. Then the quiet part in Savage Lands that gets into the build back up i can't i can't tell you just how great of a song i think savage lands is fantastic and then so from best individual moments best band moments what are the best tracks i've got four candidates here um more than i can chew gobblers of dregs and savage lands are my personal favorite tracks on here but i also want to shout out had it all which is a Really quite a moving ballad for a sludge metal band. So um, quite a moving ballad, but still retains a little bit of their weird angularness in that guest solo from Kim from Soundgarden. And uh, just more than I can chew, Gobblers of Dregs, Savage Lands, Had It All. Don't just pick out these four songs. Please listen to the entire record. I just, I've talked for what, maybe 40 minutes now about this. I think I'm just about done. I could not be any more impressed with this. Please go and listen to it. If you're a metal fan, you owe it to yourself. If you've never gotten Mastodon, now might be the time. Or certainly, it's time to fucking try again, okay? Uh, they did not work for me for years. But I just sat down and was like, "Right, what the fuck does everybody else see in here that I don't? And I kept listening until I started to get there. Now I'm here. I'm never getting off the fucking hype train. I don't think they're ever going to turn in a bad record. So super just delighted to be a fan of this band and 99 percent certain i'm gonna have to go and see them on that co-headline tour with opeth and take a bunch of acid and just let my mind fucking melt so what i think to wrap this up that we really just need now is a blu-ray of them playing this all live with tons of spacey visuals behind them and that would be (laughs) that's gonna be one of the best nights sitting in the house with a bunch of psychedelic drugs and buddies you could ever have so that's it 10 out of 10 100 i don't think when an album has this much going for it i'm not going to be here to nitpick that's not the punkadelic way i'm here to blow shit up that i fucking love and try and get you guys on board with it also just you know Progressive metal, ninety minutes long, Mastodon sludge. It sounds like totally inaccessible, but it's a fucking superb record. It there, it's art at a high level, and you know, never let anybody tell you that heavy metal isn't for fucking intelligent people because here is something that proves one hundred percent that it is. No haven't gushed all over that i hope you guys are all still with me because now you know exactly what time it is it is time for the best segment in podcasting it's walloper watch they live in your community get the fuck out they comment on your posts their parents feel them disgraceful they are wallopers Hello and you're very welcome back to the best segment in podcasting, 13 reasons the Jews are an evil sub-race of humans. I'm just kidding, of course, that's not what the best segment in podcasting is called. You're very welcome to Walloper Watch. It is the part of the show where we sit down and we take people to task for the stupid things they've been writing online. We're not looking for like full-blown racist haters like the people, the sort of people that would respond to what I was just joking about. Um, that sort of Ilka person, you know, that's that's not really what we're doing here. We're looking for something that's more like insidious, something that the way I like to describe it is like the background noise of the internet is just people writing comments that simply don't matter. It's just like if they had never written that comment, nothing would, literally not even the slightest thing would be different. You know, it's like there is no butterfly effect from these fucking wallopers Anyway, that's what we're here to do. We've got some pictures here tonight, as always. Let's have a look into who we're dealing with first. Imagine I did start a segment called 13 Reasons the Jews are an Evil Sub Race of Lizard People. Like, that would just be insanity. That would be a real left turn for this podcast. <laughs> excuse me, right turn? What? <laughs> oh, i feeling funny tonight. Um, yeah, excuse me, I'm just vamping here because uh, my phone's taking forever to load up the notes. Oh my good God, yes. What about this for a fucking scoop, Walloper Watchers? Uh, The dude who we had on the last episode, so we were reading out a story last episode about a guy who was involved in the January 6th riots in America and got shot by his own children because he was just literally walking around the house for weeks being like, I'm going to do something. And was a major known Trump fan and had tons of guns. So got shot by his own kids. He's gone fucking down for that. I don't know. Now, there's more stuff coming out about him that I've seen since. So it might go to a fucking... It might go to a mistrial or some fucking horse shit. Like, you know, there'll be technicalities all over that. But anyway, I thought that was a good one. The guy that got shot by his own son was the first one to go to go down. Oh, fucking brilliant. Uh, so let's see. Who have we got here? Yeah, so sometimes on Walloper Watch, what we've we've identified, like some sub-strains of Wallopers out there. So, you know, like, guys that write underneath porn storage pictures like that's a fucking gold mine for us but like that almost feels like shooting fish in a barrel so where I like to go are some of these subreddits where people are just nerding out way too intensely about stuff that is just like and our favorite one of these subreddits to explore is called EDC which means everyday carry and it's where people post pictures of the stuff that they carry around with them on a daily basis so tons of like knives guns, flashlights, notebooks that sort of thing but like just guys taking it too fucking far so the deal in the subreddit is you post your picture you write who you are uh, male or female like uh, what age you are and um, sometimes you can add in where you come from or a little bit of extra context and that's it and then you have to write in the comments otherwise you get booted out of the sub exactly everything that's in the picture So that means it's great for content for us because we can always go and see then exactly what each and every piece of fucking weaponry these rocket heads are carrying around with them are. So let's see, what's this guy? So this guy's all about purple pocket, purple pocket slash belt dump, two images. And lads, there's just, there's never been more stuff anywhere. Like much less in this guy's pockets at all times. There's never been more stuff anywhere. There's less stuff in fucking space that's a guarantee right i don't even know where to start trying to talk you through this i simply i will simply have to go and find the comment because it's just and it's all purple as well it's just oh my god is this the one where the comments the guy says he's on the spectrum oh am i gonna have to feel bad about this now right hold on here we go time to get made fun of again but this stuff makes me happy so i don't care I haven't done one of these in a while, so here is my updated, mostly purple EDC pocket-slash-belt dump. Before too many comments and questions roll in, uh, presumptuous, uh, I find, uh, let me address... If You you know, we're not all going to comment on a pal. Some of us are going to fucking slabber about you on our bedroom podcasts, okay? Some of us fucking go there, alright? Is this it? Is this going to be the bit that gets me fucking notice, punkadelophiles? Is this what I have to do now? Right, well that's what we're going to fucking do. We're going to make fun of this fucking gimp. Here we go, look. Exhibit A. I am on the autism spectrum. One of my obsessive interests is purple EDC gear. I carry all of this stuff because I don't adapt well to changes in my routine. This stuff allows me to quickly deal with just about any issue without it impacting me too greatly and causing a meltdown. Yes, I know this is ridiculous. I wish I didn't feel the need to carry this much stuff and I've tried not carrying it, but without it, my anxiety is way too high. Okay, so look, that's all well and good, and like I half feel sorry for this cunt that he has to carry literally the contents of the cruise ship Titanic around with him every single day, and it all has to be purple. But my problem here is like one, two, three, four, five. Sorry, I've miscounted. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six of the things are knives. There's a scalpel. I want to say also a number of wrenches, two multi-tools. And those are just the things that I feel like I would have a good chance of stabbing you to death with. Like, there's all kinds of shit here that more creative people than me would have you fucking knackered with. Absolutely, no doubt. And this um, neurodivergent is out there running about with it all. And it's just like, if that guy gets mugged, anybody in a fucking... Six block radius Watch the fuck out Because there's going to be The most heavily armed mugger Ever Just cruising the streets now And all the shit's going to match Hey fucking yay That was absolutely fucking naners I couldn't even believe that there <sighs> America Y'all got probs But guess at least There was no fucking pieces in there No guns Thank heavens for small mercies on that one, I guess. But there you go. People are out there carrying small arsenals around like they're in fucking Moripol. See, there's a timely reference for you. I'm getting good at this. I'm getting fucking good at this, alright? But by the time, of course, this podcast come out, that fucking city ain't going to be there no more. So that's going to be a data reference right away. Alright, here we go. So here is something fucking rare for Wallop or Watch. Here's a guy who Wallop watched himself. Okay, I'll just... I I almost stopped breathing like not even a little bit, but like a lot when I read this comment (laughs) because it's like I've never like I've never seen a more perfect response to anything in my life. Okay, I would say I'll go there. Right. This is the most perfect response there's ever been to anything. You can take your books of fucking Winston Churchill quotes and shove them sideways up your arse like this is, you know, in the new media, in the new sense of what English exists as today. This is a fucking belter. You ready? The first tweet we're looking at here in, a, in the thread is um, a guy is retweeting a headline from The Telegraph and that says, exclusive, the Duke of York will pay his accuser more than 12 million quid using money from the taxpayer. And then uh, the guy that's retweeting that has said, I fixed that for you. You're welcome. So he must obviously doctor that headline from whatever it was, the Duke of York will be the Duke of York paying settlement fee or whatever, you know, I don't know. But, brilliantly then, who has replied to this guy? This guy's nobody, like, he's just a fucking guy that's out there. The account that's replied to that one is British Royalist, and the profile picture is, of course, Union Jack, and then, I don't even know what the Christ that is in the middle, some sort of coat of arms, like something royal. But anyway, his comment in response to the duke of york taxpayer thing is you are wrong you really need to educate yourself on royal finances exclamation mark which speaks for itself Would don't even need like, if you've ever watched wallopers with us on this show you'll know that that is just ground floor day one 101 walloper watching right fucking there but then the response that as i have said before is so perfect it hurts it comes from himself, so that's British Royalist replying to British Royalist, and his next tweet just says, how does me telling people the truth make me a nonce? <laughs> He's obviously just beginning kidding, absolutely slandered, and rightly so, fucking walloper. Okay, so here we go, here is a list of five headlines from The Guardian, and I want you to pick the odd one out with me, okay? So, this is their... Um this is the opinion section one day recently, uh, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure when the fucking date was, I never am when it comes to this part of the show. So, here we go. Here are the five headlines that are on the front page of the Guardian's opinion section. I wrote the book on pandemic psychology, post-Covid will take some getting used to. As a Russian, I don't know how to live with the shame of Putin's aggression. The Camilla Valieva case shows yet again that the IOC is betraying teen athletes. I've been waiting 15 years for Facebook to die. I'm more hopeful than ever. I have one question for delivery drivers Do you need to use my toilet? And that's by our old favourite Adrian Childs, who's up to his fucking journalistic best as per usual, as we can see there. Here's another guy that's out here fucking expressing opinions on Twitter. Um, I know everyone is excited for The Batman and have high expectations, but for me, I'm keeping my expectations very low. What I am seeing from this film is how good of a Batman film this is and how good of a film this is. What I have seen so far, this film is a 7.9 for me so far. And please, no hate, I would love to see your guys' opinions too. Now here was the, here's the rub, okay? At the stage that that comment was written, the movie was not out. So this guy's written a whole bunch of waffle off the trailer. This film is a 7.9 for me so far from the trailer. So there you go. We've got a psychic on our hands here. But then it's just like his tweet immediately previous to these was currently taking a shit. And it's just like, well, we're not really dealing with a fucking real brainiac here, are we? Okay, here we go. So Arnold, Arnold Allen on fucking Twitter um, had this saved well before he starched Dan Hooker at the weekend in the UFC in an absolutely shocking turn of events as far as I'm concerned. Made it look fucking easy. Um, he's saying, don't worry about it, mate. It's £3 for club card owners, which is free and saves you a lot across the whole shop. Tesco, I'm expecting a limited AAA meal deal. And then, so this Arnold Allen. He's replying to Ariel Hilwani, He's on there... He's an up-and-coming fighter. He is um, trying to make a name for himself off the fact that he's a big fan of a Tesco club card meal deal and all the American journalists love it. They're eating it up, you know. And like, fair enough, whatever. And this guy is fucking right, written back to him here. Can you capitalise the rest of your name, please? Because in fairness, it is Arnold Billy Allen on Twitter and like the last two words are not capitalised. And it's just like, what's it to you, like? Who are you? fight him to do it then fucking fight Arnold Allen if you want his fucking Twitter name to change, that's the fucking rules and after Saturday night I'm not taking that no way, no how said it before and I'll say it again my perfect dream MMA career is take on Kyle Rittenhouse Boris Johnson Sam Alvey final boss Arlene Foster and retire in the ring but you know that's obviously never going to happen. So here we go. Here we're talking to MMA wallopers here, as per usual. That's another subsector or some really bad and invalid opinions about MMA out there. So do you here, this this is a guy uh, replying to an MMA journalist about one of Liam McCourt's fights. McCourt put on one of the worst performances I've witnessed in MMA. That's either her fault or her coach's fault. A clear route to victory, and she did absolutely nothing. So someone's come back to this guy and said, "You give it a go, Gary." And then he says, "I'm six two, two 250 pounds. It wouldn't be a fair fight, to be honest." LOL, and a winking face, and it's just like, like, it's scientific fact that Liam McCord can't fight. But it's just like, we're not all running about fucking saying it out loud. God go with her, good Christian. So here we go. we have come across, uh, I've come across a podcast by a young. Irish actress um, who's emigrated to L.A. This podcast is called Anya in L.A. Uh, Just an Irish girl following an American dream. I want to take you on my journey as I relocate from Ireland to Los Angeles. I can promise eventful episodes as I take you on my job hunt, my dating life, my social life and... My personal development, it's sure to be a bumpy ride, support this podcast. So, sounds horrendous, sounds like an actress who just needs, an an actress needing attention, so there we go, first time I've ever seen that, so uh maybe we'll check back in with her in a little while see her. like she just won't stop coming up on my twitter like i don't know who follows her or what the deal is but it just won't stop coming up so i'm like having a look at her bad tweets. She's been on Walloper Watch before, like, some of her bad fucking tweets. I just saw the link to the podcast, and I was like, oh, of course she has a podcast talking about how she moved to LA, like, you know, like she's the fucking first person that ever moved to LA or started a podcast, like, fucking hell. But anyway, I did actually, when I was in there, being a fucking full-blown creepazoid, or, as I like to say it, doing a bit of research for the podcast, Um, I found this fucking Holland was hanging around in her mentions, um... Oh, it's like the exact context. She tweeted that she was going to be at the SAG Awards next year. And this guy tweeted back saying he believed it. So I was like, what? What? Like, because he said he recognized her from uh, when she put up that she'd been in an extra in something. And like the picture of where she circled herself as the extra, like she couldn't be anymore in the background. And this guy saying he noticed her. And like, she doesn't follow him. So she doesn't know him. So he's just some fucking American walloper that's like trying to get this actress's attention. So I was like, okay, well, there's going to be like within the last three days on this profile. Okay, you can I can smell the walloping just happening sometimes. So you just know it's right there. You just got to get in, find it, take the screenshot, get out. Nobody ever knows you've been there. This podcast never going to get big enough for it to matter. So let's all be honest, right? But I was like, there'll be something. But I was just like. I couldn't even believe quite (laughs) So he's gone on a fucking three-tweet rampage uh, one day in April 2016 because uh, trying to get a radio DJ to check her facts. Would you hear this? Prince did not write Nothing Compares to You for Sinead O'Connor in 1990. It was written in 1985 for his group The Family. Next tweet. Please check your facts. Sinead met Prince once and he wasn't happy with her version of Nothing Compares to You. And again, that's what you said on the air twice. Please report accurately. So there you go, we've got another upstanding citizen. You know, I'd love to see the stats for uh I'd love to see the stats for how many wallopers out of uh, every time we've ever sat down and done this is American because I bet it is fucking high. They seem to do like they're really, really pulling their weight. As per usual. But um, last but not least on Walloper Watch this week we've got a uh, another previously defined sub-genre of wallopers, and that is from the Buns Facebook group. So the Buns Facebook group here in Vancouver and in other cities, the deal is it's like, um, exchanging goods without money ever changing hands. It's like setting up a border system, so very left-wing, very hippie, very idealist. But, like, I got a TV and a Playstation 3 out of it, so, like, I am not mad at it. I also got a rucksack. So there you go. Now you know some stuff about me. Pretty good setup, but those invite a number of fucking cretins to come and do stuff in there so this is what I've seen in there recently a young lady was a young lady had posted in there saying she needed her models um, and you know or, or was doing like free haircuts as part of her uh, certification as a hairdresser and <laughs> one of the comments underneath was I've messaged you before on a prior hair model post and you never responded to my message. Listen, you're fucking stinking and your hair is shite and she'll never respond to you and you're never getting a free haircut, so just fucking live with it, you fucking walloper. Alright, listen, that's the fucking show for tonight, everybody. I hope you have had a good time with us. This was a banger. I'm not sure how long this is going to be. I do apologise. I'm going to try and keep these the manageable times i was looking back through the podcaster and there was one that clocked in at two hours 20 what the fuck was i smoking um and where do i get more of it because we need to reorder that Uh no but seriously rate the show on spotify right to the show on instagram now also join the show on reddit www.reddit.com forward slash punkadelic podcast we're on there get in there sure insane shit for me to talk about on here Let's get the fucking crack happening. Uh, Don't forget, yes, read it on Spotify, write through it on Instagram, do whatever you have to do to get the word out about it here now. Um, We'll be back next time with, what have we got up next time? I think I'm taking a deep dive into the script differences between Kill Bill's first draft and the movie, the final movie screenplay. So all the play for and Punkadelic Podcast as ever. Peace, love, Punkadelic.